Welcome to See You on the Other Side, where the world of the mysterious collides with the world of entertainment. A discussion of art, music, movies, spirituality, the weird, and self-discovery. And now, your hosts, musicians and entertainers who have their own weakness for the weird, Mike and Wendy from the band Sunspot. Well, I got to say, I am completely jealous of my sister, Allison, who is often on the podcast. Oh, yeah. Big weekend. Yeah, because she was a speaker at the official Mothman Festival in Point Pleasant. So awesome. And they had so many cool things going on there. I can't wait to hear from her about all the activities and stuff. But first of all, congratulations to Allison, because it's great that they... uh, had her present with all of her research that she's done on the Chicago Mothman. She has a lot to talk about. She's an official Mothwoman. And And that's the perfect audience for it. it. Well, now here's the thing, though. I kept seeing in her Facebook feed, like, all the people who've been on the podcast, like... Yeah. So, um, Nick Redfern was there, he was speaking, and he actually did did a road trip with Lyle Blackburn... That's cool. And so they drove from Dallas all to West Virginia. Fun. And uh, who else did we see on there? Oh, Seth Breedlove. He premiered The Beast of Bray Road and stuff like that. And didn't we see um, Chad Lewis? Wasn't he there? Or was that? Yeah, yeah. I think he might be there too. Yeah. So the, 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 with the, whatever's happening, there's too much fun happening in West Virginia that we're not at. Without us. <laughs> No, I agree. So I disapprove of that, but I'm just jealous of Allison being at the Mothman Festival. I'm sure it was awesome. If any of you people are listening to us and you met Allison at the Mothman Festival, so this is the first episode of See on the Other Side that you're listening to. Oh, hi. Hello. It's (laughs) nice to meet you. And uh, thank you for checking out See on the Other Side podcast for the first time. Yeah. All right. So, Wendy, what do you got for me? Mike, I just wanted to share this comment that appeared on our See You on the Other Side Facebook page. Oh, what's that? Well, it's a comment from one of our Patreon members, and I talked about last week that I was able to meet up with him while I was in Louisville, Kentucky. Oh, (laughs) oh yeah, that also reminds me, before anything else, have to apologize to all the Louisvillains. All we said, (laughs) what did we do wrong? We were called out (laughs) uh, while we were talking, and we were um, (laughs) Saying that the city was named after Lewis and Clark, right? Yeah, Louisville like, and Clarksville, Tennessee. and uh, that is in fact very wrong. Okay, <laughs> so it was uh, apparently named after King Louis, and so they they use the fleur de lis symbol a lot in that city, I guess. And uh, ah. and then Clarksville was not after Lewis and Clark's Clark. Uh, it was, after <laughs> was named after Roy Clark. Yes, yes, that's From it exactly. It's a very people love hee haw <laughs> in Clarksville, Tennessee. According to Wikipedia, Clarksville was named after George Rogers Clark, who was a Revolutionary War general, but he actually is related to the Lewis and Clark expedition because his younger brother, William, was the one that uh, did that. Oh, okay. Awesome. Yeah. So it was still William's last name, but he was not the the one they named the city after. (laughs) It's more like batting 30% on there. But yeah. Hee-haw is still huge in Clarksville, though. And thanks for the correction, Chuck, who is a you know from that area. And he posted on our page yes. a very nice comment I want to share, which says, 
For anyone who hasn't become a Patreon yet, consider this. One of the perks of membership is an invitation to the Patreon Google Hangouts. Mm. When I recently had the opportunity to meet Wendy and spend an afternoon with her and Scott Marcus, it didn't seem like meeting new people because I'd been to so many of the Google Meets before this. If you've ever wanted to meet Mike or Wendy, become a Patreon. It really is as good as meeting them face to face. Oh, that's, well, that's really nice. nice. And like I said before, uh, meeting Chuck in person, it was not like meeting a stranger. We've chatted so many times and shared so many fun stories and things and laughed a lot in the Hangouts. So yes. it's uh, our Patreons. They're the best. Yeah. And Chuck even wrote that after we had butchered the history of his town name <laughs> by yes. saying it was named after Meriwether Lewis. <laughs> so, all right. I'm, okay. Anyway. So never mind yeah. that, but thank you for the very nice comment, Chuck. We appreciate it, and we appreciate our entire Patreon community, and we're planning our next Hangout very soon. We hope to see you guys there. Anyway, Wendy, I wish I was psychic. You do? Yeah. I wish that I could see the future, talk to dead people, get messages, oh, communications cool. from the other side. I'll take, I'll take communications from just my friends. Tell you the truth. doesn't have to be the <laughs> other side. Like just, okay. you know, yeah. I, would, I would take anything, any little psychic messages I can get. The problem is I don't get nothing. Ah, do you have any? Maybe you just need to listen a little bit more. <laughs> well, that's with your mind's ear. Well, and you know that's something we talked about in a discussion today with uh, a psychic and angelic channel, Danielle Agnew. All right, yeah. So she's somewhat interesting. She's uh, from Montana, and we get her whole story in this interview. Plus, she's going to give us some tips about how we can sort of start turning on our own receivers and start maybe getting some of our own messages. Well, I I can't wait. I need to learn this. So why don't we go straight to the interview? Let's say hi to Danielle. Coming to us from Montana today is psychic angelic channel and author and a musician as well with her solo stuff, as well as in a, in a band called uh, Pope Jane that I was just listening to about 25 minutes ago. We'd like to welcome Danielle Agnew to the show. Danielle, how you doing? I am great, Mike. Thank you for having me. This is a ball of fun already. All right. So, Danielle, first of all, let's talk a little bit about what it means to be a psychic and angelic channel. So what does that mean? It is a fancy word or words for translator, really. And it has taken me years and years and years. I've been doing this 15 years professionally. It has taken me years to get used to being called a psychic or a medium. And when I do this work on television, then you'll see the little title come up under your name and it says psychic medium, which is kind of like mocha latte. It's semi-redundant. However, right, okay. oh, it really is. And so being being called a psychic and an angelic channel, which I am both, literally means that I translate messages, energy signatures, energetic data through the ethers, through dimensions, and it is literally a translation service. Now, that doesn't sound nearly as sexy as psychic, which is probably why they put psychic under my name instead of translator. No, right, because if you said translation service, it really would feel like, uh, you know, you're a service that you can get on Fiverr or something like that. Like, you, for, you know, like you can sit there and translate what the angels say. Well, okay. Now, I'm interested in how this kind of started. So where are you from originally? I'm from Montana originally, Billings, Montana. So you're a Montanian. I, indeed. So you're from there. And when did you first start getting these messages or how did it happen? When was the, when was the first moment that you're like, somebody's talking and I don't know who it is. I honestly thought that 
everyone was receiving the same set of 500 channels that I was. And I was two years old. I kid you not. We were out at my great aunt and uncle's house. And I was clinging to my aunt Sylvia because I was a little afraid of my great uncle Dominic. He was this big old fat, intense, bald Italian guy with really intense eyes. And he scared the crud out of me. So I went over to my aunt Sylvia. And I was hanging on to her legs, and she was very kind, and she would pet my head, etc. Years ago, uh, I was telling my mom this story when I was about 17. And my mom looked at me really oddly, and she said, "You, there's no way you can remember your Aunt Sylvia. She passed away before you were born. And I thought literally, as 17-year-old teenage girls often do think about their mothers, I thought my mother was just nuts and out of touch. And I explained to her that I saw my Aunt Sylvia's hair, and I explained the dress she was wearing and her hairstyle and the smell of her clothes. My mother says, well, yes, that's absolutely Sylvia. That was a dress she had. That was the apron she wore all the time. Yet she died in 1967, and you were born in 1969. So this remained a – it was weird. And I thought, Mom, you're on crack. What is your deal? This remained a big issue until years ago, my cousin, who who these were his grandparents, came forward and presented me with the physical pieces of paper that came from Sylvia's funeral, and she died in 1967. So I have been receiving messages, seeing if you want to call it dead people, whatever, for as long as I can remember, and I never thought it was weird. I just honestly thought that everybody else was was getting the same broadcast that I was. But the thing is, so let's think when you're two, you're just seeing that person in the, do they look any different? So first of all, imagining, I, th- I mean, a fat Dom was actually a Sopranos character, if I remember correctly. So being scared <laughs> of a big Italian dude named Dom seemed, uh, that does not seem weird at all to right, me. Right, right. But number two, like, did you, you remember just seeing the person in the room that, I mean, were they looked in, were they translucent? What was, no, that's what's did so, they have wings? No, you know, it was that just kind of the thing. weirdest thing, man. Honest to God, they, she was solid as a rock. You couldn't see through her. I was literally leaning against her. So I don't know what the hell I looked like I was leaning against to everybody else in the room. Yet my weight was on her. So, I mean, part of my face was in her skirt, you know, because I was afraid of my uncle. So literally, this whole wraparound was that this person looked extremely solid. That's why I really thought my mom was out to lunch on this whole thing. So that happens when you're two years old. When does this start becoming a regular occurrence? When did you start realizing that you were seeing people that maybe other people were, were not seeing them? That was around junior high school. You know, I come from a family of very spiritually gifted people. And so it was normal to have really bizarre occurrences happen, such as my grandpa would come home and he'd be white as a sheet and he would say, oh my God, I saw a death mask on one of my friends, which is a phenomenon of seeing a white mist over somebody's face. And then a couple days later, this poor person would die. So my grandpa would be all shook up. So it really was not until junior high when Wait, did he warn the person? Like he's like, Holy you got a death mask on your face, I, man. I, I would go home, don't eat anything spicy. Or <laughs> I mean, what do you say to the person <laughs> when you see a death mask? I don't think he said anything uh, because it freaked him out. You know, my grandpa's side of the family, the Italians, were raised very Catholic. And as Christian religion goes, Catholicism is very mystical. However, even that being said, I don't believe he said a thing. He just kept it in freaked out when he came home. 
So sure. yeah, I mean, you know, yeah, what are you going to say? Hey, buddy, guess what? You got one to three days and then you are gone. You're in the party bar. Right. Woo. Like don't drive, like take a week, like go somewhere, say, I don't know. I'd say go in the bunker or something like that or stay in your basement. I don't know what the, you know, you feel like now, is this something that re- regularly you talk about seeing a death mask or, or things? And so you said you, your grandfather's side of the family was very spiritual. And ob- I mean, the Catholic, Catholic mythology and mysticism, I mean, there is a ton of that. Oh, yes. Right in there. I mean, when you think about the, uh, you know, people still wear, when you just go on a, a vacation, you put on your St. Christopher medal, you're putting on a magical amulet. Yeah. Because you're flying on a plane. I mean, there's definitely a mystical, <laughs> a mystical element to that. Oh, absolutely. So, but the thing is, so you're saying that uh, this isn't unusual in your family that this kind of was, you already had a predisposition towards this thing. It wasn't like your family was a bunch of atheists, right? That's correct. And so it didn't seem weird to me that angels would be coming on a certain bandwidth. There was a time frame that I went through when I was about 14 to 17, when a ton of demonic activity was coming around to see how I was going to respond to that. And I realized later in my life that that's actually really common for people who happen to have this genetic predisposition with a lot of psychic gifts or spiritual gifts, for some reason, the dark crawlies come around and I think they just want to see what you're going to do with it. You know, they're going to see if they can scare you off of using it or I don't even know what their big well, trip how is. Do you, how do you know the difference? And, you know, when you say like demonic activity or, you know, or even some some kind of entity with a some kind of sadistic intent towards humans, how, you know, how did you know the difference or or how did they present themselves to you? It wasn't like a dude with horn, like we just talked to a guy who, um, he said a demon like showed up at his house and it was a big it was a big face with horns and it, you know like it it looked like it had a hermit crab for a hat it was all blue in his living room. Oh all my right. god. So that's how the demon showed up to him. Now how did the demon show up or how did these evil entities how did they appear to you? They were a lot more stripped down. They were black, just blacker than black. Like a black swimming cloud in a room. You can Feel demonic oppression. It is just the grossest, low, eerie, god awful, slow vibration. And that's really, honestly, a measure of spiritual physics because darkness is, if you want to call them demons or darkness or hell or whatever, anybody's kink is there, darkness exists in a different dimension and its base resonation is much slower than light. So you come around these guys and you can just feel this low, creepy, weird, icky, heavy, dreadful vibe in the air. Now that's different from human spirits. If you get around a creepy human spirit or a human spirit that's never crossed over, so it's a little crispy and bizarre and crunchy and cranky, then that spirit is going to feel a great deal more like somebody's watching you that just makes the hair stand up on the back of your neck. You know, like if you're in a bar and there's some creeper weirdo who's just staring at you across the room, you're like, what the hell's your problem? That's more the- f- Well, that's usually me. I'm usually the staring guy. <laughs> okay. Like, hey, what's up? What's going on? So that that right there is the feeling of a human spirit. Demonic oppression doesn't necessarily feel like an individual is watching you. It feels like the entire room is watching you. So- Okay, but but when you started to feel that, so I mean, I'm just trying to think of how you, because it seems like you have some kind of handle on it now. But I feel that when you're just, I'd say, coming into your power, let's say, let's use that for a you know a way to describe it. Um, when you're coming into it, 
you know, when you see a, a blacker than black mist in your room, you know, is it something where somebody else is like, oh my God, did you gas or whatever? I smell sulfur. And then you look <laughs> over and see the, the you know, the demon. Uh, like it, it, what kind of, like, how did it present itself? Like, was it waking up in the middle of the night? Was it you know, like you're working on your homework and somebody at your shoulder? And did they say things to you? Well, you know, you know that it is a demonic presence. You just know, just like you know when an angel is present. It's like, you know, if you're looking at an acoustic guitar or an electric guitar, you can identify it by what it looks like. I just, I just knew it was the most awful, God awful feeling. And I believe strongly that human beings were beings of light. And so I think in our base DNA, just like we have biological fear, right? If I walk up into a grizzly bear up in the mountains that are right behind my house, biological fear is going to kick in. Now, I might not ever have been told what a grizzly bear is, but that biological fear in my DNA is going to go, okay, girl, do not pet that bear. So it was the same thing when I encountered this black swimming mass. What they used to do is they would wait till the middle of the night because it's actually easier for low-grade or low-vibration entities to communicate with you during that time frame because we have all our lights turned off. It's quiet on the earth. It takes a lot of effort for darkness to communicate in this realm of light. So they kind of got to wait until the runway is a little more clear energetically. So I would be sitting downstairs, and you know when you're a kid, you never sleep, and I'd be drawing or writing or mm -hmm. doing whatever, you know, at God knows what time, 2.30 in the morning, and you would just feel the entire ether of the room change. It would just change. And I would just pretend to ignore it because I even knew instinctually back then, if you run, you're prey. So just, just keep doing what you're doing. And you could literally feel it just move around the bed. And it was just looking at you. And I would try to wait until I didn't feel so creeped out and go to bed. And then I would generally have these just god-awful, just classic nightmare dreams of being chased by demonic activity. And there was always the same demon type of presence that was representing itself with different horror-type uh, icons in my mind through these dreams. So this went on and on. And once in a while, I'd look over at night and there would be this weird swimming black cloud in the room and I would just start saying the Lord's Prayer and eventually it would go away. So this went on from 14 to 17. And that's when I really realized. Now, did you tell other people about these kind of things? So you first start seeing something in, in junior high, you first start realizing like, okay, I'm seeing things that other people aren't. I'm getting messages that other people aren't. I'm being visited by demons. Now, we all get nightmares, but you're like, I'm being visited by demons in the middle of the night. No, I, girls talk to each other. They, you know, especially teenage girls. Like, how do you bring that up to your friends? Be like, yeah, the demon showed up again. Or, hey, I can, I can see your uncle. Like, I know that he just died, uh, but he's right behind you. And, you know, how do you approach that with your, you know, with being a, a burgeoning adult? I would tell my friends. I tried to tell my mother. I said, Mom, I think we have a hole to hell in the basement. Because, of course, I picked the basement room, right, as a kid, because that's what you do as a teenage girl. So I said, Mom, there's this hole to hell down here. And my mom, of course, just blew me off and thought I was being a histrionic 14-year-old girl, which I don't blame her per se. So I told my friends and they got me crucifixes and we tried to bless the basement. And oh my God, we went through a whole teenage girl thing. And eventually this stuff just went away because I wasn't going to engage it. I wasn't going to be impressed by it. I wasn't going to be afraid of it. And it just went away. 
Now, do you remember the first time when you were talking to somebody about this or you were sharing this with a friend? Do you remember the, the first time you said something that really blew their mind? That they were like, okay, you know, she's just making stuff up until you knew something that they, they didn't know. Do you remember that the first time you blew a friend's mind and even yourself, you're like, okay, I know this is real. I actually weirdly do not remember a first time doing that. Um, it happened a lot. And I remember lots of wide eyeballs. I remember lots of people going, huh, how did you know that? But then people would just kind of cook on from there. I remember as I got older and we get more set in our in our identities and I would try to tell somebody something. And it's, listen, Mike, it's not like Ghost Whisperer where it's like, oh, wait, I have a message for you. And you're wearing your Audrey Hepburn wig or whatever's going on. I mean, there, there are rules to right. how you deliver this stuff. Um, yet even then, I remember having clients for the first time that would look at me and even though they're in session with me, they know they're sitting in front of a psychic, an angelic channel, a medium, and they their eyes would pop open and they would say, how do you know that? And I would laugh. I would say, well, God, I better know that. That's what you're paying me for. Otherwise, I need to give you your money back and you need to get your car washed or something because that's what I'm here for, you know, is, is to help you with these things. So I do remember that with clients, not as much with friends though. And maybe they, they were just used to it, maybe. I'm not sure. Okay. Well, I was just wondering, like, because it seems like... If I started doing that with my friends, you know, they'd be like, well, you got to prove it to me, you know? And so they'd probably freak out a little bit once I did, but I don't know how the messages come through. I mean, that's why we're having a conversation because I don't know how it comes through or, or how you get it or, and that kind of thing. And th did you find out you were a musician, um, you're a singer, or just listening to your, we can link to some of your YouTube videos and your channel and stuff like that. So people can hear your songs. You were in a, you know, it sounded like an alternative late nineties alternative band. Pope Jane, which was a great name. It's very Lilitharian, so it seems like perfect for the time and everything. And listening to the music, and I was enjoying it. Um, but did you find out that any of your supernatural friends gave you any help when it came to writing songs, or were they like, "Hey, you should write a song about this" or anything oh, like that? Total, yes. And Pope Jane, you're completely right. It was we were we started in the mid '90s. We rolled through till the late uh, early 2000s. So we were totally doing the Lilith Fair thing and all free, female three-piece. And we started out as this alt-rock band and ended up kind of as an Americana band, as, as it always goes. And it, it was just fun. I feel like as an artist, and I bet you can relate with this, I believe that all artists are channels, especially musicians. We are channeling huge frequencies. And the angelic realm actually speaks in tonal frequencies, which is kind of cool. So I feel like I... Yes, I can say I wrote this song, and I've been lucky to write many. However, I really believe that we co-create with the universe this material that comes through us. I mean, I'm sure you've had this experience, Mike, like you're hanging out, and all of a sudden, I, I'll just be reaching for whatever I've got. If it's a napkin, if it's a paper cup, I don't care what, because here comes this melody line, and it's attached to lyrics, and it's surfing in from flipping somewhere, wherever this comes from the universe. And I'm just catching this thing. So I'm catching it and writing it down. So I really do feel like I co-create with the universe all the time. I mean, I can honestly say that I've never had, you know, Prince come sit down and say, hey, let's write a song. It's never been like that. Right. Yet I always feel like I am co-creating with the universe in my music. 
Well, and that, you know, that's an interesting thing. And just, just thinking about that, the, the idea of channeling something and coming through is, is that a lot of times do when you're working on a song or you have a great idea, like, a, like it seems like the great idea doesn't necessarily come fully formed, but it, it comes in the source of like, it's just the whole sentence or the whole lyric or the whole melody line pops into your yes. head at once. And it's like, oh, where'd, where'd that come from? And, you know, I always think about Samuel Tyler Coleridge uh, when, you know, he wrote Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner which is probably his most famous work, but he also has, I'm not sure if it's either, it's either Ozymandias or, or Kubla Khan. I mean, he woke up from like a, you know, like a laudanum dream or something like that. He was all <laughs> wasted, but then he goes ahead and writes this epic poem for a long time. And then it's unfinished because he like, he falls back asleep or whatever. And then he wakes up. It's like, that's it. That's all I had. Yeah. And that always felt like, well, somebody was speaking to me when I always heard that story. It's obviously, you know, chemically enhanced or whatnot. But at the same time, there's something to it where it was like somebody was talking through him. Like he woke up and maybe he was more amenable or more receptive to whatever he was channeling. But that's what, you know, that's what you made me think of right there. That idea of, I kind of don't know where this came from, um, but it's here and I feel like it needs to be expressed. And so I think if you have, sometimes we get those messages, whether they come from externally or internally, but we get that and we don't know where they're coming from. So I think that if you have a, uh, you know, you, you, you can see the sender more than other people can. And, and, and if they decide to, um, like they want you to help them tell their story or express their song or, or create something. And it, that must be something cool to know that you can see who sent you the message versus, Oh man, I don't know. I don't know where that came from. <laughs> right. It is an experience very much like that. And I've had people, clients of mine, and I'm extremely blessed to have clients all over the world. And people will call me who are in the creative arts and they'll say, geez, I, I just, I've got this terrible writer's block and I have to produce and I have to do this. And I'll tell them, listen, just chill out. You know, you do not, you're not receiving the next broadcast yet. Is there something in your life that's stressing you out? Are you preoccupied with an emotional issue? What would take your radio tower offline? And sure enough, somebody's worried about bills or they got to put their dog down or there's some legitimate reason why emotionally they're twisted sideways. And when we have those big emotional expressions like that, it takes our creative ability to absorb information. It takes it right offline. So writer's block can either be we disconnect from the universe and or we just aren't ready to receive the next piece of the message yet. You know, it's funny you say that. It makes me think of something. I was reading about a like a study of all of these British songs from like the late 70s and early 80s that all became eventually huge and and the way that a lot of these artists because they had a particular welfare system in place in like the late 70s and early 80s because you mentioned like well you're stuck on bills or you're stuck on you know having to make money and that's being an artist that's half the battle it's like okay I can create something but now somebody's got to buy it right and it was funny I just I was just thinking about that like a lot of these songs came out of because the the Brit there was so much uh, in the welfare, artists could get welfare in the in this particular time frame, and no matter where you stand on the political spectrum, we all enjoy the songs that came from it. But they had to be freed from worrying about where am I going to get my pounds? You know, they had to be freed of having to worry about where they're going to yes, get paid. Yes, exactly. Where am I going to get something to eat? <laughs> right, in, in order to be able to do that. But that that can make you stuck. Now, have you ever been stuck in something and? 
and how does it work when you're where when you're a channel i mean they're coming through you but can you ask questions can you call somebody up i mean is it a transmitter as well as a receiver it's 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 both. I mean, you're transmitting and you're receiving. It's like a, a MIDI cable from the 80s, you know? You're sending information, you're receiving information. So there's never really a time where you're saying, okay, I'm only going to hear psychically, but I'm not going to send anything, or I'm only going to receive music, but I'm not going to create anything. You are in a constant figure eight with the universe energetically. And I think, I think people truly access this in different ways, Mike. I think some people are saying, okay, so I'm going to go into a trance and I'm going to feel all this energy and I'm going to place it forward. Uh, for me personally, it is a constant ebb and flow. And I, I, like I said, when I was a child, I experienced this from a very early age. And it's interesting that you were saying you had friends had you had a psychic ability that popped out, and clearly you're a channel, you just are because you're a musician. So that's part of the that's part of the skill set. Yet if you would have come forward with psychic information, you would have had friends who would have said, Oh, you got to prove that to me. Well, I was sending and receiving all the time. So everybody who knew me, I think, was just used to the fact that it, it was part of my daily conversation to pop in with odd bits of information. So I, I'm not sure that it's something that, in in my case, now everybody's different. In my case, I know I don't have an on-off switch to control the yield on either end. It just does what it's going to do. Okay. Now, when did you decide to make this, uh, you know, part of your career? Because like, so right now you're on this Ascension tour and you're, you know, you're stopping at, at, at different places across the country. I saw that you, you were just in Portland not too yeah, long ago, right? Yeah, on September 8th, we were in Portland. September 22nd, we're going to be down in Boulder. So, uh, October 6th, we're back up here in Montana in Billings. That's the lar largest city here. And then uh, again, on October, oh, I'm going to get this date weird, 20th, then we are going to be in Minneapolis and it goes on and on from there. Okay, great. So as you go on this tour and you go meet people, you know, obviously you've made the you've made the jump to say like, okay, guys, I, you know, I can I can talk to dead people and angels in this business. And that's a very I mean, even though you you were already working in the entertainment business in in music and things and uh it's it's a big jump to then embrace, I guess, oh, the weird yeah. at that point into it. And so when did you decide to make that jump and, you know, kind of come out of the supernatural closet? Thank you for calling that because that's what I felt like. I was, I was really terrified to come out of the spiritual closet. It was easier for me, way easier to come out in the early 90s as a gay woman in the mainstream music industry. I, I mean, my management was mad, but it was easier sure. for me than it was to come forward and actually call myself a psychic or a medium. First of all, because I was raised in a family that even though they were very Catholic and later half my family was very evangelical, it was very religious, either way you slice it. So we were taught, uh, especially when, not, not in the Catholic sect, but when my family, part of my family rolled over into the evangelical belief system. It was heavily, heavily preached that anybody who spoke to the dead or did anything in the spiritual arts was communing with the devil. It was demonic. It was all bad, blah, blah, blah. Well, when I grew up and went into my own studies of religions and actually got into the Bible and pulled that apart, that's not entirely what it says, but that's that's a whole other podcast. Yet when I was in music, uh, Pope Jane got done with their last record deal and everything was done. In the mid-2000s, and things were ramping down, 
And I was super terrified to come out of the closet with this because really honestly, dead honestly, I was afraid that people were going to say, oh, okay, so now you're the musician who had some great albums, you were signed, and now you're in your mid-30s, and you can't get work musically, so now you're a, quote, psychic. Okay, whatever. Well, I mean, Brett Budliff from Grace Under Fire, I mean, speaking of people that come out, like, I, she has a whole website where, all, like, she, she does psychic readings now. And you're like the chick from Grace Under Fire does psychic readings? So, I mean, to me, I, I can see exactly where you're coming from, because that's the thought process that went through my head. It's like, wow, she must have not handled her money very well, because now she's a psychic. Well, that's exactly what I thought people were going to think. So, I'm like, there's no way in hell I am ever doing this professionally, because whatever, And then as universe directs us, and we all know this is true, whether we want to accept it or not, we get just kind of corralled down certain pathways and we come onto these crossroads. So I was done with our record deal. I was done. And actually an opportunity presented itself to help out uh, the police department in Burbank on a cold case. And I was living in Los Angeles at the time. I lived there for 11 years. So I thought, well, okay. You know, I'm I'm just going to go help here. And about that time, a very good friend's mother had told me, and she was very psychic. She had said, "Why aren't you reading for people?" And I said to her, "Well, why aren't you?" Because she, she was so psychic. And she said, "Well, why aren't you? You really enjoy it." So there was this weird little piece of me in there that was needing to acknowledge the fact that I'm, I listen, Mike, I'm not claiming to be a superhero. I'm not claiming to be some god or anything like that. Yet I did recognize that I had a higher than average capability of being able to translate dead people, angels, and factoring timelines and looking into the future. So I thought, well, God, this might actually help people, you know, who are struggling. So I started reading for people, and it was really through the work with the Burbank Police Department. And just it just kind of went from there, and it took off. And do you know what's weird? I never, ever had one person, well, at least not to my face, man, nobody ever came up and said, oh, God, you must m- need to make a house payment. Uh, you're, you're, you're pretending to be the psychic. And I think it's because all the people that were around me, they would be on the tour bus, I'd be telling their future, we'd be whatever. And I think people were like, well, that's a normal transition. Okay, next. Okay. Well, I mean, that's great that he didn't have a tough time of it. So what did the Burbank police need help with? I mean, that sounds like something exciting in its own right. Was it a murder or was it, you know, somebody's stolen jewels? What could it be? It was actually a missing persons case and it was a child. It was pretty awful. And, you know, how did they hear about your particular skills or did you come to them or, you know, how how does that go about? Because you think like the police, like, okay, we're, you know, We've ran out of, uh, you know, regular right. methods here. Let's call the supernatural 911 and see what happens. Like, how do you get approached for something like that? So one of my clients was a police officer. And I was reading, uh, my very first reading gig was out of a shop in Burbank called The Psychic Eye. And it was just like a metaphysical shop. And it had readers back there. Because I, I didn't know what I was doing in terms of you know, marketing yourself or whatnot. I mean, that wasn't my industry. I I was a musician. So I'm just like, Mm -hmm. where do you go to tell people's future? This is weird. I don't know. So I was reading out of the psychic guy in Burbank and one of my clients was a police officer. And she was particularly impressed, I, I guess, with my reading with her. So she talked to one of her people 
and asked if I would be willing to weigh in on some information on a case. And that was hilarious. It was not hilarious. It was actually really horrific. Yet the process was hilarious. I mean, you have to have full handprints. And they don't just print your, your fingers when you're going into the Burbank system. They put your whole hands on there and a background check and the whole nine yards. So I, you know, I, I, I gave the information that I was receiving. And just to clarify for anybody listening, there is no such thing as psychic evidence, okay? If somebody like me gets pulled into a case, and I went on to do a lot of law enforcement work after that, our job is like a bloodhound. We point the law enforcement officers to actual physical evidence that they then can present in a court of law and change something around. So we can't just sit there and say, oh, I feel like this was really a bad deal. I mean, our job is to find things and or, or something... Right. And that's funny because when you said that, like, we're like a bloodhound, I was picturing like, well, of course, because like, I'm picturing a bloodhound on the stand and the lawyer like, so what did you see? And he's like, and then the, you know, like trying to convince the jury with psychic evidence would be pretty difficult. Exactly. So, I mean, therefore, right, there is none. And so I did what I could and they, they did manage to find the, the body of the child. I, I'm not going to take credit for that because there were many, many people working on the case. My contribution may or may not have helped, yet they did bring, they did find what they were looking for, um, not immediately, but about two weeks later. And so, you know, it's icky and sometimes there's just not a happy ending, yet if you can help bring resolution to people's grief so that they can process and do their very best to move on, then I, that, that's, the best we, that's the best we've got. Well, finding the body is good for the, I mean, that's like, but it, the, it helps yes. the family right there to, to kind of, because the, the mystery is gone. And then it was it a crime. Did they find the person that did it or was it just an accident? They did find the person that did it. It was not an accident. It was a really icky crime. Oh. So if it helps bring the person to justice as well as to resolution for the family, I mean, that's a, that's, I guess, a net positive for a profoundly negative event. Yes. Yes, exactly. So you're a psychic. You decide to, you know, you come out and say, hey, I'm a psychic. You're working at this place in Burbank. Uh, you start working with police. So now when you do an event or something like that, like how does the, how does the event go when you, because I've seen people do gallery readings. Sure. Where it comes in and their person's like, you know, like I think about the TV show Crossing oh. Over with John Edward, where he's like, I'm getting somebody with an A name. Like, how does it come to you? Well, what's fascinating is I love to watch just full tilt mediums. I love them because they work, they, they're on a different frequency than I am just a bit. I do mediumship work, yet full tilt mediums are Wow, they fascinate me. Like Teresa Caputo, who's like, hi, your grandma just came. Her name's Eileen, and she wants to tell you this. You know, Mike, I'm crappy with people's names in real life. Okay. So, <laughs> you know, moving that into the spirit realm, it's the same issue. When I go out, my ascension tour is all about channeling angelic messages for our time frame because we have switched operating systems from the masculine time frame into the feminine time frame. We've got a lot of rules that are crazily changing in the base OS of not only the spiritual framework of the world but also our everyday application of that framework. I mean thoughts become things. Okay, so give me an example of that to help kind of so if if our basic rules are changing and we're changing the framework from masculine to feminine, what's an, what's an example of that that maybe the the layman can understand or the lay lay person can understand? 
Sure. Well, everybody inside of us, we've got yin and yang. We've got masculine and feminine chi. Everybody has it. It's part of what we flow with. You know, like cars have gas and oil. It's just part of the mixture in the engine. So what we're doing is we're going into this time frame where thoughts are literally things. Uh, what that means is you ever notice that now, as opposed to maybe seven years ago, if you're thinking about something, it either happens, it comes to happen, whether it's good, bad, indifferent, results are coming through in the real world, in the three-dimensional world, because our ethers are very thin. And ethers are energetic baffles between the spirit realm and the three-dimensional realm. So our brain is an electromagnetic organ. And every time we have a thought, it creates a synaptic arc. That's an electromagnetic spark. And that actually affects the quantum field or the electromagnetic field or the ether structure that we live in every day. Now, because the spiritual physics are different, and these are just super duper cliff notes, one of the big affects we're going to see is that whereas in the masculine time frame, having the one leader or the one way, or I'm going to beat you up until you believe what I'm saying, that one directed way, yeah. you'll notice it in the news, you'll notice it in culture, that is falling away to a more collective stewardship where it's like, hey, man, we, we all kind of have to get on board with what we can do and bring and make this a better world and everybody's got to do their part. That's a feminine piece of taking the one leadership role and distributing amongst the many. So these angels will come to me and I will be channeling information and angels are a trip. They sound like Yoda. It's weird. But they will be channeling information about all kinds of in, all kinds of stuff, especially that's relative to different areas of the country. So it is cool. Then I get to do a question and answer with people if they have general questions about the world or they want to ask the angels anything. And then we've got uh, individual readings for some folks. Now, when you say that these angels come through, number one, they sound like Yoda and they have information for certain parts of the country. What's an example of a message they'll give that is relevant to a certain area or when you're when you come in and you do your tour date, let's say you're doing it in Minneapolis, or whatever, what's what kind of message uh, do they have for the people in the Twin Cities? I don't know yet. We haven't gotten there. I can tell you about Portland, though. Um, you know, Portland and literally that's the other thing I have no idea what I'm talking about before I get there because I am literally the chick reading the ticker tape, literally. Okay. So I get there and they just start pumping the information through and it's relative to the needs of the people in the room. It's relative to the environment. So for Portland, for instance, Portland, part of their message was that they live on what's called an expulsion zone that has to do with how electromagnetic or geothermal energy is released from the earth. It also has to do with how we as creatures of electromagnetic brains put energy back into the earth. So there were a lot of messages about the folks in Portland and about whatever they're doing there because of the expulsion zone they live on, it splashes about 1,500 miles in a big circle everywhere from Portland because of the nature of the flow of energy. So we talked a lot about what does that mean? What are your thoughts doing here? What are you doing with yourself here? How are you handling all of this energy that's coming up to the ground? Who's having problems sleeping? That was hilarious. I said, who's having problems sleeping? Because this, there's so much EMF coming through the ground and every single person at the event raised their hand in Portland. So, I mean, there's just that was just like a tip of the iceberg comment regarding the actual geographical location. And there was some information with Portland folks uh, about social issues and some other things that came through, but it wasn't even like social issues. It's more consciousness issues that come through. And then there are some larger arching um, pieces of information right now that have to do with 
how the world is changing so quickly. There's many people, I mean, it's, it's going a little crazy. And so the pace at which it's going, people do seem to require some clarification on that. So what's an example of something like that that you may have gotten? Like, so do you get messages every day or just when you show up or like, how does the message come through? Like, like if you got a message today from an angel or a channel or anything like that, like, what does the message say? And you say talks like Yoda, does that mean inverse grammar or things like that? Or like, you know, like, so how does the the message appear to you in your head or where you hear it? And is is it audible or is it? in your head or like, how does it, how does it come through? What's the, uh, before you translate it, what does it sound like? It's half in my head and half out of my head. And that, that took a little getting used to. At first it sounds like an overtone. Like, have you ever heard? Well, of course you're a musician. It sounds like rolling harmonics, uh, kind of cascading harmonics. It's tonal first. And then it falls into a sentence and oftentimes the sentence is chunky and blocky, and it may have five or eight words, yet each word has this massive attachment to it. So as the translator, I will say the sentence, and then I'll say, and I wish I could give you an example, but unless it's actually happening, it's a little rough. Um, then I will say, okay, so here is the actual, you know, here's, I'll say, this angel is saying blah. What they mean is, and then in our colloquial discussion, English is a horrendously linear language, I've got to unpack all of that and explain the nuances and explain what this means and that means because the nuances, the gray areas are contained in the tonal overringing. So there's a five or six or eight or 12 words or whatever that are just semi-oddly placed. And it reminds me of, have you ever seen the use of ghost boxes on paranormal shows where oh, yeah. these... Okay, I feel like a living ghost box. I feel like they're beaming through things and whatever the most relevant concrete word to represent a multi-concept is being pulled and then kapunk, 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 kapunk. Because they certainly don't speak English. I mean, they speak whatever and they've got to make sure I understand that. So it comes in, it comes in as a tone and it forms into a funky sentence that I get to unpack to make some sense. Okay. So the, the, the angels that channel or the entities that channel, like, have they given you some kind of, I mean, of course, when you read in the Bible and you look at uh, Hebrew mysticism and Catholic mythology, it's all this, uh, you know, there's the hierarchy of angels and there's the, you know, th- these different characters that I- exist in our idea of Judeo-Christian mythology. But when they come through to you, is there any kind of particular, like, do they, does this sound like the angels in the Bible or, you know, what you'd see, like, what's the structure? Of angels? What's the angelic structure? Yeah. Is there, I mean, because we, you know, we read about these things and, you know, we just, you talk about the, the language they might speak and like John D said it was a Nokian. That was the name of the, the language speak. And in the middle ages, they had hierarchies of this guy rules hell. And, and this guy is the one that handles these particular things in heaven and, and all that kind of stuff. Now, when these entities come and talk to you, do they come at more of an angelic level or alien level or have they presented themselves to you as in some kind of hierarchy or anything like that? Not really. In fact, what I get a chance to chat with are people's, what we would call our garden variety, everyday guardian angels. And we do have angels that are assigned to us 
the moment our spirit is created, not just boots on the ground here on Earth. I mean, if two million years ago we were living on Mars, we had that same tech team. I mean, it is literally like a, a group of techs following a NASCAR around to every single race. They know how we work. It is not the angelic walk to have to change out lessons and change out people. They are very into efficiency. It's been my personal experience into just translating for these beings that they are not they're not mean, they're not nasty, yet they are not these warm, puffy, fluffy things that we've made them into. That's a little more of, I think, a humanization of them so that we feel better around them. Um, they're a little more like, hey, here's the deal. This is the story. Do what you want with it. You know, they're very, they're not mean, yet they're very to the point. So what's the, what's the message that most of them have for, you know, if, if your tech team could talk to you or my tech team to talk to me, like what's the, what's the message that most of them have for us? Well, it depends on the person, love. It deeply depends on the person. You know, if somebody calls and they're asking about uh, a life path issue or a past life issue or uh, whatever it is they need assistance on, angels are messengers. So they deliver a message. And I have well-meaning clients all over the place that will call. And we as people are so used to being preached to by the authority that people will call and just say, well, what do my angels want me to know? And I'll have to explain to people, listen, they're not people. They don't have an agenda. They will help you with whatever you come forward with help that you'd like to have. So it's been my experience that they, they come forward with all kinds of cool stuff, depending on people's needs. And I have to say, I, I identify these beings uh, as what I would call the guardian angel sect. They, they have never identified themselves as anything under the, uh, anything other than Anak or or angel, uh, which is just like normal, I guess. I've not talked to you know Michael the Archangel once in a blue moon. I think maybe three times in my whole career doing this. There's been an archangel that's kind of poked through, identified itself, and said something, and I just was like, "Oh man, I don't know if I'm up for this." <laughs> it's a whole different energy, and it's like when you call customer service and the manager's on the line or whatever. Yeah, and and it's a way different energy, and it's usually something is very meaningful for the individual, like like they won't hear it from their native group, so they've got to hear it from this big enchilada. That's my take on it, uh, because. We are in constant communication with our angels, especially we musicians. Man, we're tonal language, man. We're always, always on that frequency with these guys. So I guess the best way I could answer your question is I suppose there are hierarchies of angels. It's it's not really part of my work to deal with some of the higher-ups or whatnot. I seem to be dealing with the folks who have boots on the ground with people every day. And so if they have that kind of you know, is it that they want to help or are they more, um, like you said, like not warm and fuzzy, like we picture angels and harps and giving us a big fat hug or whatever, <laughs> if it's more, or if it, it's more like they are dispassionate, like they're, they're sources of information and they're there to be accessed. Like when you say a guardian angel, is it they're sent to protect us or they're just sent as a, they're available as a resource? Somewhat both. Think of a counterbalance. So we're here in this third dimension. They're in this seventh dimension or wherever they hang out. And for every piece of consciousness in one dimension, there is an attached piece of consciousness in another dimension. So we're learning from them. They are learning from us. We're in that figure eight hardwire. How, and they are, you know, I don't want to misrepresent them. 
they are passionate in their own way. It's just that they aren't human. So they don't have this big chemical expulsion of emotion that comes through us. They have warm bursts of love or they have warm bursts of caution. And the the most accurate equivocation I could make is if you could imagine a really uh, expressive to a point, but not super emotionally expressive, intelligent, like like an android, you know, that that just accesses everything, stands in the gap for you. It really does get in your corner, but it's not going to get in that emotional seat with you. They do help us, yet their list of duties is huge. And humans are like maybe on the bottom four rungs, and then they've got like 12 other things they're doing. They're temporal creatures, so they're doing other things in addition to assisting us. Yet I, I find fascinating, Mike, that we as human beings we're the center of our own mythology, right? We're the center of our own world. So in our minds, angels are waiting on his hand and foot and God is waiting on his hand and foot. And we're just, we're just part of the flowing puzzle here. So in your experience, when you've dealt with these creatures and stuff, so when somebody dies or if you've dealt with somebody who's passed on, whose physical body is dead, do they get to hang out with the angels then? Or do they need to go towards the light to the next thing? Do they immediately get reborn? When you see somebody who's, you know, was a human and is now non-corporeal. What's it like to leave your body when you die? Do they express anything to you or do they say like, oh, I'm hanging out with my angels or grandma and grandpa are here and it's really great. Or are they scared? You know, what, what's the situation there? People who have crossed over have gone into a lot of detail with me when they've been speaking with family members who were bereaved to tell them what it's like to die. And they always say that the the overarching, the overarching repeating theme is that as your body is a biological mechanism. So as it's shutting down, you have that biological fear of death because your body is programmed to stay alive no matter what. However, once you relax past that, all of these people talk about angels coming forward, huge, beautiful white columns of light. Sometimes they form into a human figure. Angels will matrix to make us feel better. They're not here to frighten us. So if I think an angel looks like a blonde lady with big giant wings and flowy hair, then the angel will go ahead and matrix into that to help somebody cross over. And once they go through this portal of light or this giant light tunnel, which it's just this big giant burst of light, Then once you're on to the other side, a lot of times you have family members that are there. I've been told that the family members are kind of hanging at the edge of that white portal, yet the angels come and take us over the edge. I've even had people or angels represent both of them in different ways that uh, there was a young woman who had passed from cancer and she was really terrified to get out of her body. And so these angels kept trying to come forward and it was scaring her. So they went and got permission to go dress up like grandma and come in and lead her back over the, you know, it to grandma, literally in this other side. So there appears to be some sort of, and this part's way out of my pay grade, I'll tell you straight up. There appears to be some sort of vibra- a vibrational difference or middle place between earth and that realm that we call the afterlife or heaven or whatnot. And these angels traverse that like crazy. They don't have a problem with it. The human spirits seem to hang on the other side of that. So even when I'm translate on that window or that white heaven portal or party barge or whatever you want to call it. So on that side, when I get a chance to speak with humans that come forward, I literally dial my frequency to a different frequency because human spirits come in at a different frequency than angels do. They're, They're not as present 
as the human spirits. It's like I'm almost speaking through a fence to them because they have crossed over. So they're not in that room. They're not in that space. They are they are in their ether and we've got a connection and we're chatting. So there does appear to be some spiritual physics difference between being a human spirit coming and going in angelic life. Okay. So, you know, when they cross over, have you ever met anybody who's like, maybe they were a bastard in real life and they, they crossed over to hell and they're, they're speaking to you from like, they're speaking to their relative and they're saying like, don't do what I did. Don't screw up or anything like that. Or is it just, is it not punishment reward versus just a continuation of existence in some, some way? It has been my experience, and this might make a lot of people mad, actually, because we like the idea of justice, right? We like the idea of you are an a-hole, so you're going to burn in hell, raw. Yeah. Except that's not been my experience. What happens is these people, especially, I see this with, with people who were sexual abusers or just twisted up and broken people in life. They die. They cross over. And a lot of the damage, the mental illness, the sociopathic stuff that created the monster that molests a child, that stays with the body because those are experiences here. So I will have a lot of times these people who committed just grievous, awful things come back and literally say, she would never recognize me right now. She will not recognize me. And the only thing I can pass on is such a clear understanding of remorse. And a lot of them actually have described working through these god-awful, horrible things that they did to other people, almost like being stuck in a robot that was just going off in these weird behaviors. And there was always this little person in them screaming, going, what are you doing? This is amoral. And yet this would, because of the damage or the illness, uh, the mental illness or whatever, they would just continue on. And so... I've never actually encountered a spirit that I couldn't find in the hereafter or I couldn't find in the middle place that had gone to hell. Uh, I, I have encountered spirits that won't cross over because they they know they've done terrible things and they are frightened to death that the minute they cross through that portal, they're going to go right straight down and meet Lucifer and boil in hell for the rest of eternity. So they don't cross over and they stay in this in-between ether and that's where they are free pickings because that's still the free will zone out here, even if you're out of your body. That's where they start to get beset with horrendous dark things that just start to feed off of them, terrorize them. And they think they're in hell because they have stayed separate from moving on. So then you got to get in there and try to tell these folks, hey, snap out of it. You're actually creating this own your own hell here. You need to get out of this in-between zone and move over to the safe zone. Yet by that time, they're so full of illusion and they're twisted up and they think that the angels that are following them around trying to get them to cross over are, are after them and it just, it gets really awful. So I don't see many of those people, yet it's, it's pretty tragic when I do and they take some work to try to get them to understand the space they're in. Well, that's certainly an interesting idea, the idea that our souls are all basically good and then it's an actual, you know, when somebody does something evil or a person is a an evil, what we would consider an evil or a sick or deranged criminal kind of person, it's actually, you know, the the fault that like you said, like you're stuck in a robot. That's the that's the faulty equipment. Well, that's what's been shown to me. And you know, and that doesn't Mike, doesn't that just defy what we think? Because we've been taught if you're a bad person, you go to hell, right? If you're a traditional Christian person. Yet it makes a little sense if you back off the lens a minute. Why would just, and I'm not speaking for God because I am not God's personal press person, yet why would right. 
an all-knowing being that is based in a high vibration of love, if if why would that being disqualify a person from getting into, say, heaven, if that person at the age of one years, year old had begun getting beaten and molested and broken into a million pieces and then carried that behavior on, it'd be like, nope, sorry, you get disqualified at one. You, you got broken. You, you know, it's, it's not like my experience in observing this is God is not the middle management looking at a conveyor belt, throwing out the faulty things, saying, nope, 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 nope. So there's a lot to it that's way above my pay grade, yet I hope that answers your question to the best of my ability. Oh, yeah. No, that's, a, that's, that's definitely an interesting perspective. The idea that they, when there's something faulty in the biology, uh, you know, when you think about a lot of mental illness is an example, like hormones, neurotransmitters, things off the, you know, things out of balance and everything. And, and that gets into the whole free will issue. You know, like in the past, you'd have to say that evil people have to choose evil. Uh, I mean, it has to be a choice of theirs because if it's not a choice and then you're invalidating hell and the idea of hell as a some kind of social yes. control tool goes out the window, you know, if people are basically good. Now, re- a couple last questions here. Have you dealt with people that have had past lives and reincarnation? And has that has that been something? Because sometimes we're talking about what well, they're crossing over. Well, if they're crossing over, do then we come back, or are we given an option to come back? Or have you dealt with people who've been in multiple or spirits that have been in multiple human bodies over time? Oh, absolutely! Every single human being at this point in history on the Earth, all eight billion of us or so. Every single human has been here multiple times, and prior to even getting to Earth, are you ready for this one? People who have chosen to come here as humans have have lived lives off-world. Clearly, we are not the only life in the universe that defies mathematical odds to gregarious proportions, and there are so many of our off-world cousins out there in these realms that have been existing for millions of years before we as a species have even got any tread on our tires at all. So if we are here on earth, we have lived lives in other worlds. We've at, at the very minimum, we've lived multiple, multiple, multiple lives here because earth is unlike a lot of different realms. Earth is a fascinating energetic recycling bin. We are taking in energies from multiverses here because the earth is a giant spinning electromagnet. We talk about vortexes, the Bermuda Triangle, all this stuff. We are sucking in energy from multiverses. And what do human beings do? We are an empathic Bluetooth species. We can feel the pain of each other. We are fascinating that way. And what do we do when there's the crap hitting the fan? Humans step up. We transmute god-awful things into beautiful results. We are natural energetic recyclers. So if you're going to be an energetic recycler down here on Spinning Recycling Rock Earth, you best have had some tread off your tires before you get here. Because a brand new soul would come down here and have all of this free will, all of this good, bad, good, and different, what's happening, we don't know, we literally live in a matrix, all of this chaos flying at any given time. And a, a young soul would lose it. They would not, they wouldn't have a clue how to do it. So if we're on the earth, you can pat yourself on the back because you're a 0.01% heavy lifter. You're a special ops kind of soul that loves this kind of heavy transmutation energy. And you don't see this energy on different realms like Sirius AB or Otur or any of these different realms that have actually contributed to, you know, us building pyramids and all of these other things, our frontal cortex genetically. We are here specifically 
to transmute energies because we love it. We love the transmutation from dark to light. It's kind of our kink if you're here. All right. Well, that's a um, that's a pretty cool way to put it. Then the idea of the Earth as you know, it's it, it's a it's a power station. And so, people. So, last question here, Danielle. And thank you for for spending your morning with us. You bet. So, so people who are interested in maybe accessing some of that kind of power or getting uh, or sharpening their antenna, like. Is there anything they can do? Like, is it, maybe she's born with it. Maybe it's Maybelline. Like what is, what is something (laughs) that somebody can do to maybe increase their potential of being in in contact with these uh, other entities or kind of, kind of get in touch with their spirituality themselves? This is the best part, Mike, about the feminine timeframe and and fellas, fellas who are listening out there, when you hear feminine timeframe, it doesn't mean effeminate. It just means different operating system. This is the best part about it. Our DNA, okay, our DNA is literally changing right now. So we've got these first two rungs of DNA out of these 12. The first two run the body. Science calls these other 10 that hang below them junk DNA. They're not junk. They are open with resonation, just like the first two rungs of DNA are open with chemical cues from the body. The lower 10 are are opened with vibrational cues. So you, you, anybody listening out there, you are a psychic person. You are a spiritual person. Human beings are born empaths. Some people have an exaggerated form of that empath and, and then they are an empath. So we have uh, so much at our fingertips. And if you wish to access that, then getting in touch with the intrinsic natural vibration around you is going to help. That's one of the things I talk about on the Ascension Tour is how do we open up these rungs of DNA that are trying to open up? Because when they do, they send cues to the body to receive, they send cues to the brain to break down electromagnetic energy differently or receive psychic messages differently or more easily or more readily. And that's the time frame we're in. We're going to have some kind of rough sailing here with our not only our weather, and I think we probably don't need to be psychic to know that, yet there that's going to re- sure. release some challenges on the earth. And what are we going to do if we can't call each other on the phone? We have to be able to feel each other. So being able to listen, try to get as much low vibration junk out of your life as possible. Watch if you're an obsessive news watcher, and I'll try to make this quick, Mike. I know we're at the end here, but if you're an obs- if you're an obsessive news watcher, be careful with that because not because it's the news, but because the way that the anchors are trained. And I know this because I'm someone who works in media, and they tried to train me this way, and I just threw it out. If you notice, I don't care if it's MSNBC, Fox News, whatever. Here's the tone: na 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 that triggers the brain that you're getting yelled at. That triggers the brain. It triggers the amygdala to go into a defensive position. And when we're afraid, we tend to be hypervigilant and we tend to absorb information in a different way. And that's not always healthy. Oh, you know, I've never really thought about that. That's a great point. I used to work in TV news too. I was a news director for a couple of years. And so... And it, I, I mean, I can't stand to watch news um, <laughs> myself, and it's especially local. It makes me want to shoot myself. But the thing is, you're exactly right. The way they read, and I just thought you, you read that because you're reading off a teleprompter, and it's like looking at all the, the all caps letters and the teleprompter and stuff like that. And it's the, the the cadence and the speech is designed to fit into a certain time frame. I mean, it, almost like you're fitting notes into a measure, and measures into a you know a section of a song. 
And so all of that is that cadence is developed for a certain time frame, and all news anchors kind of kind of say it the same. Now some might say a little more uh, slickly than others, but that cadence is the same no matter what the the spin is. And it's funny that I hadn't ever thought about that before, but that even that that particular cadence in the way that newscasters speak, and we'd all recognize it, you know, when you hear it, and they're all trained to speak in that certain way. Can, can activate our amygdala and activate our fight or flight response. And not only does that get us more interested and excited about the newscast, it also makes us more, um, you know, our brain more activated when we're watching the commercials that happen right afterwards and the products they're trying to sell us. It's kind of like w- when you take a date to a horror movie, you know, the, the, the heightened emotional response makes that date like you more. It's take them to an amusement park. Once you go on a roller coaster together, um, you know, your date, feels more warmly to you because of that heightened emotional response. So I never thought about the cadence of the newscaster does that. I think that's brilliant. Well, right. And this is the information that I'm getting downloaded with to tell people so that we may make choices to deprogram ourselves. Because as you, as you said, you were a news director, we call it programming for a reason in media. You know, when when we deprogram ourselves from the, you must be dependent on something exterior from you, go buy it, you'll feel better. We get into our innate DNA, we get into our own vibration, we get into the connectivity of the human race, we transcend the need to be bossed around, controlled, we transcend the need to be told what we feel like, and the world changes because we no longer put a bunch of weirdo pressure on one person or one, one institution to solve all of our problems. We have been summarily... Uh, disempowered for thousands of years as a race. And right now, everybody's power is coming online. This is the pre- predisposition with superhero movies. Everybody is a superhero. Everybody in some level is a spiritual psychic something because we cannot help but be. We are literally up to three ounces of energy that are measured by science in the body that leaves the body when we die. So we we are energy. And accepting that and moving into this next phase of how do we get connected to what we are, disconnect, do your best to disconnect from, uh, It's I'm not blaming media gang, I'm also talking about the frequency bandwidth that it comes in on, there's a lot of electromagnetic interference in the world, there's a reason I live way out in the country to do my job. So just give yourself a break from it. I love media. It's awesome. We're doing media right now, and this is awesome. Yeah, right. give, yeah, give yourself a break to get out and listen to a creek. Listen to the wind. If you live in a city, lean against a tree and just feel the tree. And people are like, how do you feel the tree? Trust me, the tree will let you feel it. This is how we open up that DNA that we have chosen to let go dormant that is now opening to change the world because it's what's needed. We're all needed. We are all leaders. That's that's a great couple of things. Number one, uh, stop watching so much damn news. Number two, go outside. And number three, when you do go outside, open yourself up to the possibilities uh, that everything around you has a message for you and start listening to your own better angels. And if, if people want to uh, get in touch with you Danielle, so that they can uh, maybe hear what 
what their angels have to say through you in the in the Danielle Agnew translation service. That's right. Where can people find you if they either want to see you on your upcoming Ascension tour or they want to uh, talk to you themselves? Well, if folks want to see me on the Ascension tour, go to ascensiontour.com. If you go to the Dates and Tickets tab, you will see all of these fabulous cities, Minneapolis, Reno, Columbus, Ohio, Billings, Montana, Boulder, Colorado. Pick your date, pick your admission style. We do have a VIP ticket if you want to hang out with me for an extra two hours afterwards and we just talk about weird cool stuff like ufos or whatever whatever you want to talk about so go to ascensiontour.com if you'd like to contact me for a reading then head over to my website that's daniel agnew e-g-n-e-w dash advisor daniel agnew hyphen advisor.com and there's a ton of stuff on there you can read about what type of service, uh, translational service, I can provide for you. You can get to the Ascension Tour that way. I've got some spiritual artwork up there. My books are up there, classes, whatever. You can find it there, and I look forward to reading for you. So angels sound like Yoda. That's what we learned today. Like Yoda, they sound. Yeah, like, oh, do they? Okay. Anyway, Danielle was really nice. <laughs> her music's good, too. Make sure you check out the show notes, and you can listen to some of her songs. Cool. I put up the most embarrassing 90s video I could find of her. I love the 90s. I know. There's nothing wrong I know. with that. I love it, too. And I love it, too. But she's, it just, it's just we remember how everything looked and the sound and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So it's fun to revisit. That's awesome. And I wanted to make sure, because we, we were making music back then. That's and true. And we still are today. <laughs> and, uh, you know... This song has a little bit of a 90s feel, I think. So the song inspired by the conversation with Danielle, I I think the part that got me the most was the idea that there isn't a hell. You know, I think think that that affected me the most, the idea that there, there isn't a hell and that human souls are basically good that it's the biology that gets faulty. So if, if there's mental illness, it's because the wiring is wrong. You know, and that and that's why people do bad things. It's not because their spirits are bad. Hmm. And that does kind of go against the whole idea of free will. You know, the idea that free will is it. So we choose to do good things, uh, and that's what gets us into heaven or hell. So that made me think about that a little bit. And also, in a world where spirits are basically good, what does that do to our idea of free will? Even if our brains were just machines. Two, is it just an infinite number of variables that cause us to act a certain way we will? And that gives us the illusion of free will. So anyway, huh. I, I basically had a stoner conversation with myself when I was thinking about this. It's like, oh man, <laughs> nice, free nice job. will. Like, is, does it, is it real? Does it exist? How many Cheetos did you go through while you Right, I went through that? an entire bag of that Munchies by Frito-Lay and it blew my mind. Because if Munchies <laughs> had good. Cheetos, Doritos, pretzels, the whole thing. <laughs> And stayed up all night and talked to myself about that. But that kind of inspired the idea of the song. Because the idea that there isn't any kind of hell or any kind of karmic justice for things made me think that it's basically our job to forgive. And that that's what this song is about. It's the idea that, you know, don't worry about who's getting what and who gets what they deserve. And justice has to come down on the, on the people that are evil. It's that you need to live your life the best way you can. And it, it made me think about this story I read in a book when I was a kid. And the book was called Those Who Hunt the Night by Barbara Hambly. And they talk about this legend, uh, which is a Germanic knight in the 13th century. His name was Tannhauser. And he was a knight and like a singer. So, mm, fun. Yeah, so he, was a, he was an adventurer as <laughs> well as a stud. musician. Yeah. <laughs> and he got, so you remember 
uh, the second book in the um, oh, the Wise Man's Fear in the Name of the Wind series, right? Kavoth. Oh yeah, yeah. So yeah. Kavoth goes to the land of he goes to the fairy world with the uh, the fairy queen and has a lot of sex with her. That's the ex- that's the <laughs> for same, like half the book. Ha- half it's like two hundred pages of <laughs> fairy sex. That's what the legend of Tannhauser is about. He finds mm-hmm. the mount the mountain of Venus. And goes under the mountain into the fairy world, and he's there for like a year, engaging in all sorts of carnal activities. Now, he comes out, he feels guilty about this, he feels like he has sinned, and he goes with a bunch of pilgrims to Rome to beg the Pope for forgiveness. He's going to go and he's going to ask the Pope to absolve his sins. And Pope Urban IV says to him, there's a better chance that flowers are going to rebloom from my dead staff than of God forgiving you for what you have done. He sends Tannhauser away, and what happens is three days later, flowers start blooming from the staff. Oh. And then the Pope, some you know, in some versions of the story, the Pope burns in hell for rejecting the penitent, or Tannhauser's already died in that time frame, so he died without ever being forgiven by the church. Uh, but the whole idea of that is that no one is unworthy of forgiveness. And I see. so I originally read that story. I'm like, oh, that's a really cool. That's a really cool legend, a really cool idea that no one is unworthy of forgiveness, no matter what they've huh. done. And then I, when I looked into it, I didn't realize that in the Tannhauser legend, number one, Blade Runner references it with the Tannhauser gate. <laughs> yeah. One of the places to go. Which, by the way, Mike, it's over 100 episodes ago, so you might have forgotten, but we actually have a song called the Tannhauser gate, which was uh, from episode 109. That's right. The paranormal mind of Philip K. Dick. So... If you want to check that out, it's uh, OtherSidePodcast.com slash 109. And so uh, Alistair Crowley wrote a whole epic poem about Tannhauser. And then H.G. Wells was inspired by the story of Tannhauser in his book, The Sleeper Awakes. And so like Wagner wrote an entire opera based on the story of Tannhauser. So there's all this stuff about Tannhauser that I was completely unfamiliar with until I researched it after talking to Danielle made me think about that legend. So that was kind of the inspiration behind a little little bit behind the song, uh, the story of Tannhauser, and that it's up to us to forgive because no one is unworthy of forgiveness. Hmm. And so that caused me to think about some places in my own life where I had not forgiven people who had, I feel like had wronged me. Oh. And so it made me really think got about, you thinking. Yeah, it did, make, it did me. Th- so that, that kind of inspired this song. So this is our latest Sunspot Jam, <laughs> uh, inspired by the conversation with Daniel Agnew and also the legend of Tannhauser. Bury me with it. <laughs> Then 
Thank you for listening to today's episode. You can find us online at othersidepodcast.com. Until next time, see you on the other side. And since we started the show talking about our patrons, we are not going to forget about our awesome patrons, the, the people who help see you on the other side happen every single week. Number one, we got to give it a shout out to Dr. Ned, who's at the level we give a shout out to him in every single episode. Yay, you man, Ned. Dr. Ned. <laughs> yes. And thanks to all of our community members. I can't wait because we are going to have another hangout very soon here, Mike. Oh, yeah. September 27th. So mark your calendars patreon members and it's not too late you can always join in and and be part of that hangout if you aren't yet a member and where can they do that mike they can find that at othersidepodcast.com slash donate that is www.othersidepodcast.com slash donate thanks for listening and angels are a trip they sound like yoda it's weird